The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. Well, in our study on the Sermon on the Mount, we, we've come to chapter 6, and, and it begins with this statement from Jesus about hypocrisy and righteousness. It's a very important statement. It, it is like a thesis, and it controls the next few Topics. And so let's look at that again. Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And so Jesus gives three specific warnings related to this idea of practicing righteousness before others in order to be seen by them and rewarded by them. Again, it doesn't mean that we're to live privatized lives, but if we're doing these things in order to be seen, in order to be rewarded, Jesus is speaking to us. And he, he mentions giving to the needy prayer and fasting, which are sometimes referred to as the pillars of Judaism. And so like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't saying you shouldn't do these, these acts You shouldn't do these things, but he addresses the the heart and motivation behind them. And so last week we saw that giving to those in need ought to be done, but it ought to be done with discretion, even in secret, unlike the hypocrites who would draw all the attention to themselves when they gave alms. God sees what is done in secret with the right motive and rewards us. But if we do righteous acts for the sake of man's applause, we have our reward already. And this week we're going to see that Jesus takes up the practice of prayer and puts it through the same heart analysis. There's a scene in the old movie Shenandoah where uh, Jimmy Stewart's character is eating a meal with his children shortly after his wife has died. And while she was alive, she handled kind of the spiritual life of the family. She handled the prayers at dinner. But now his children are saying he must pray. He's clearly not a Christian, which you you learn as you listen to his kind of sarcastic prayer. This is what he prays. Dear Lord, thank you for this meal. We plowed the ground. We planted the seed. We pulled the weeds. We harvested the wheat. We ground the flour. We baked the bread. But thank you, Lord, for this meal. Amen. So you see his, his sarcasm. Now, as believers, we understand that there would be no ground to plow were it not for God's gracious gift. There would be no work to give without God giving us bodies and function and, and energy, no crops to grow without rain, when it is a gift from God. We would never pray a prayer like that. But functionally, sometimes we have more in common with Jimmy Stewart's character than we think. Perhaps we don't pray. And so by not praying or praying very little or only about the big things, We're actually saying that everything else kind of does depend on us. Our jobs and our health and our daily food and provision, our family, our relationships. We do all these things. We learn a lot about ourselves by thinking about our prayers. How much do we pray? What do we pray about? Where are our prayers focused? What motivates our prayers? What does it say, for example, if we're quick to pray with a group of people? but really slow to do that when it's just us. Or if we're really passionate in public prayers, but, but weak and unenthusiastic in private, long in our prayers before others and short when we're alone with God. Robert Murray McShane said it this way, a man is what he is on his knees before God 
and nothing more. So prayer shows us who we are, what we believe, and who we're trusting in. So, so as that is an introduction, I want you to listen to Jesus' teaching on prayer. Look at verse 5 of chapter 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Here's how I boil down Jesus' main point in one sentence. The motive of true prayer is God's glory, expressed in a dependence upon God's grace. The motive of true prayer is God's glory, expressed in dependence upon God's grace. And so we're going to look at this passage as two halves. First, we're going to see, number one, if you're taking notes, a warning about prayer. So we see multiple warnings, actually, in verses 5 to 8. A warning about prayer. And then secondly, we want to study together a model prayer, a model for prayer in verses 9 to 15. So if we're honest, this topic of prayer can feel defeating for us as Christians. We can walk away feeling like failures and more discouraged than, than anything. I think Jesus' words encourage the opposite. If we, if we have ears to hear, that, that we would be freed from seeing prayer as pretentious, as a burden, and, and be freed to a freedom in our prayer being more consistent and joyful and having it be more satisfying as we commune with our Heavenly Father. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. And so before he teaches us how to pray, Jesus shows us how not to pray. And that's our first observation, number one, a warning about prayer. Remember that controlling statement in verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. I don't know how anyone with any kind of public ministry could hear Jesus' words and not tremble as they get up before others to teach or to preach or to pray. In, in context, he's going after the heart behind the public prayers of religious leaders. I lead in prayer and preach God's word publicly um, over 40 Sundays every year. So this application this week has not been merely theoretical for me. Hopefully it's never theoretical. But I don't have to imagine, in other words, what it would be like to try to impress you with my words, with a turn of phrase, uh, with my prayer, with points from the text that you never saw. 
I just want you to know that as I'm walking through these verses, I'm sitting right next to you, hearing the warnings from Jesus and repenting. Wanting to have my own heart refocused, my own motivations checked and changed. So I don't stand over this text pointing a finger at the Pharisees. I maybe started that way that, that, this week, but didn't end the week that way. I see Jesus' words squarely pointing at me. And so let me just encourage you to take that posture as we hear these warnings. Number, or verse 5 says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. As Billy mentioned last week, a, a hypocrite is an actor, someone who puts on a mask for the audience to be seen in a particular way. And Jesus speaks of these religious hypocrites wanting to pray in order to be seen by others. Some would do this in the synagogue as a man would stand up and after the reading of the law in a gathering to pray. And of course, this is a great honor. And it would be easy for him to be tempted to impress those in the audience with his words, with his passionate tone and his fervency. He might even be motivated to pray even better than the guy who prayed last week. They're familiar temptations for anyone who has ever taught or prayed in public. And some were known to pray publicly even at the street corners so that their devotion to God could be seen by as many people as possible. And so at times of public fasts or the time of daily afternoon, the daily afternoon temple sacrifice, the trumpets would, would blow as a sign that prayer should be offered. And if you just happen to be in the marketplace, when that trumpet blew, you might turn at that very moment and face the temple and pray there in front of everyone. Apparently, some religious leaders would just happen to shop at prayer times regularly and had gained a following for their showy prayers in the streets. And Jesus says, since these acts are truly aimed at the recognition of others, they have, in fact, received their reward. God isn't hearing their prayers. They are being rewarded by the applause they receive, and it goes just as quickly as that applause does. Instead, Jesus says to his followers, we must be those who truly seek to commune with God in prayer. Verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So you can't be accused of placating when you're in, or play acting rather, when you're in secret prayer because the only audience is God. There is no, there are other onlookers there. There are no onlookers to impress. Only God sees and rewards us. I don't think Jesus means to discount public prayer, obviously. Uh, Jesus and his disciples pray publicly in the New Testament. We see prayers from the early church that are public in the New Testament. Even the model prayer that we're going to examine just in a minute begins with our Father, signifying a corporate prayer and the importance of praying together as God's people. So Jesus is after our motive more than our position, our, our heart's posture more than our physical environment. And he wants to connect the, the private life of the believer with his public life. So Jesus continues with this second warning there in verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for, the many, for their many words. Here what's in view is a kind of manipulation. 
Some pagans would repeat the names of all of their gods as they would pray and hope that they would kind of awaken one of them or they would get a bidder for their request and they would be interested in helping them. In other words, the the chances of your prayer being answered kind of go up the more phrases you repeat and gods you mention. Well, Jesus says that practice has somehow invaded even the lives of his fellow Jews. The idea was to have a prayer that would be good enough, impressive enough to merit God's attention, even his answer. Now, the implication is that God must be busy and not that interested in our needs or our simple kind of heartfelt prayers, but he needs to be enticed by eloquence and longevity. Notice how Jesus corrects this this misunderstanding in verse 8. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Friends, the encouraging reality here is just to be reminded that we don't need to inform God of news about our life. He knows our need before we even ask him. Isaiah 65, 24 says, Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. And because he is our father, we don't need to base our hope on how well we ask, but on the fact that he is our father. He's a good father. He loves us. So my response to my children when they they come to me and ask for something isn't to, to sort of answer them or to give them what they asked for based on how eloquently they asked. My decision is based on whether or not it's good for them, whether or not it's going to help them or encourage them or, or please them. I love them already because I'm their, I'm their father. So we don't need to, 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 to think of prayer in some way that we are, have to push the right buttons in order to get God's attention. How do you feel, parents, when your kids do that with you and they try to manipulate in some way your response? The author of Ecclesiastes says in Ecclesiastes 5.2, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Again, I don't think Jesus' main point is that all of our prayers should be very short. Um, after all, that was, it was Jesus that, that taught the parable in Luke 18.1-8 of the persistent widow who who kept coming to the unrighteous judge begging for justice and eventually prevailed because of her consistency so we don't want to be like the pharisees and then come up with a list of rules to combat the list of rules that jesus is combating jesus point here in, in 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 that text luke 18 is that we would never give up in our prayers that we would keep asking And there's no contradiction there. There's no contradiction from having lots of room in our services on Sundays for prayer and and, and showing each other and reminding each other how much we need God by the time that we spend in prayer. It's the motive that matters. It's the heart behind the prayer that Jesus is is highlighting. Jesus prayed in public. He prayed prayed in private. He He prayed short pithy prayers. He gave himself to long midnight vigils um, through the night. So his life of prayer should encourage us to come to God as our Father in confidence and trust, not pretense, not manipulation, not pride. So brother and sister here this morning, when do you pray? Jesus assumes that all of his followers will pray. When he starts this section, when you 
pray. He doesn't say if you pray or if you have time to pray, but, but when you pray, whenever you pray. Notice how Jesus pushes us away from kind of the, the public persona and image that we kind of carry around to just a quiet room, an open Bible, and a closed door. Jesus isn't teaching that we don't have a public Christian life. He calls us to publicly profess our faith in him through baptism, to publicly join ourselves with his people through church membership, to publicly use our gifts and to serve others around us, to share the gospel with others, to seek to reach the lost. What Jesus is warning about here is having a public-only Christianity, a Sunday-only Christian life. He's warning against hypocrisy uh, of wearing that Christian jersey around in public, but inwardly playing for our own team. Beloved, are you given to secret prayer? Listen, we all have ups and downs in our prayer lives. But is there a growing sense that prayer is essential in your life? Because we don't, find, we don't find time, we don't struggle to breathe. We don't ever say, you know, I just can't find time in my life to breathe. No, we breathe or we die. And I think prayer is that essential to the Christian life. In prayer, we commune with our Heavenly Father. We worship Him, we talk with Him, we open our lives to Him, we bring our burdens to Him, bring our loved ones to Him. And in those times when we pray with the church, we're bringing that personal relationship with God with us to bear on the relationships of others in our lives. We can feel the urge. I feel the urge to impress others when when I pray, when you pray. Maybe to find just the right words that would impress them or make them think more of us. Or maybe we're intimidated to pray in a group of other Christians because we don't think we'll measure up to their prayers. What if I say something wrong? What if I lose my train of thought? It's that same mindset of trying to compare ourselves with others instead of understanding we're praying to our Heavenly Father. We don't have to try to impress Him. He loves us. When we pray in public, we should prepare our hearts. We should know the deceptive nature of pride. We should ask God to humble us, to help us to turn away from a desire to impress, to have a heart to serve others when we pray. To remove our ego from the equation totally. And when we have that mindset, I think it actually encourages freedom and joy in our prayers, both public and private. And those around us are built up and encouraged. And here are the warnings that Jesus gives us about prayer. Because now he's going to move to, to instructing us and modeling for us how to pray. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time together This morning, number two, a model for prayer. And so I'm going to spend half of a sermon on what Al Mohler wrote a book on, um, The Lord's Prayer. And so I've got this book, The Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down, for someone who wants to read it. Um, After the service, just come let me know if you'd like to to see a deeper look at The Lord's Prayer um, that that Al Mohler has done. It's a really helpful uh, little book. And just, just... Unfortunately, I'm going to give a bit of an overview over the Lord's Prayer. We could easily spend six more weeks, six more months, just on verses um, 9 to 13. But we're going to look at, with the time we have remaining, what, what Jesus is saying to us here as he models this prayer 
for us. The irony when we come to the Lord's Prayer is that Jesus just taught that God isn't wanting us to simply repeat words like a script to him and say, okay, if we get their words right, he's going he's gonna to answer us. Prayer is not formulaic like that, according to Jesus. Yet, these verses, verses 9 to 13, are some of the most memorized and recited verses in all of the Bible. Um, I didn't grow up as a Christian, but I grew up knowing and saying the Lord's Prayer. And I felt like that, in some way, was kind of like the magical, you know, recipe that was going to get me in. The ancient first century document, the Didache, uh, prescribes Christians to repeat this prayer three times a day. Now listen, that's not a bad thing to do, to, to remember and recite the Lord's Prayer. We've taught our children the Lord's Prayer. It's a wonderful thing to memorize. But we need to remember that it's a model prayer. Jesus showing us how to pray, not necessarily what exactly to pray. He says in verse 9, pray like this, which is different than pray exactly this every time you pray. So keep that in mind just as we go through. The tone for our prayer is really set in the outset by the way Jesus teaches us to address God as our Father in heaven. First of all, we're reminded that Christianity is not, an, again, individualized, privatized uh, religion, but, but when we are saved, we're saved into a people, better yet, a family. This family is called the church, and we together can pray to our Father. Uh, John said it this way, 1 John 5, 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So those who are born again love the Father and love all those others who have been born again. There's this direct connection between your love for God, God's love for you, and your love for others. That's the hour coming out in the Lord's Prayer. So there's an intimate, familial kind of reality in the Christian life. It's not that I just have a Heavenly Father, but I also have brothers and sisters And so, therefore, it's not just my daily needs and sins and deliverance that I pray for, but theirs as well. Friends, that's the the tension. That's the, the reality that we try to live out here as a local church, that we care for one another and love one another and are devoted to one another. We've covenanted to care for and minister to one another in this way because we're a family united in Christ. And I love this phrase, our Father in heaven and and the way that it helps us to think about God, particularly in our prayers. He's our father. He is close to us as a father. He's intimate with us, and and, and yet he's in heaven. He is transcendent. He is producing in us this sobriety and and reverence and even fear as we consider who God is. The, The Jews saw God as this exalted God over and above all personal relationships and titles. They would, they would not even pronounce his name out loud. Couldn't imagine referring to him as Father. Yet much of modern evangelicalism is kind of the opposite side of the seesaw. We've, got this, this, we've lost kind of that exalted view and have a much more kind of familiar version, kind of just like me version of God. And, and both realities need to be held in check as we pray. The reality of who God is and the privilege of coming to him as Father. It ought to hush and humble us, as one author says. 
You can break the prayer down, the, the, the Lord's model prayer, into six petitions. Uh, the first three are focused on God. So his name, his kingdom, and his will. The second uh, three are focused on our needs, our daily bread, our sins, our temptations. Again, there's this beautiful balance of Jesus' direction and teaching here, beginning with God. Central throughout the prayer is God, his glory and rule on earth, but not unconcerned with us, with our needs today and our lives. Some of us need an adjustment in one or both of those areas as we think about our own prayers. Some of our prayers are only about us, only about our needs, only our situations. Some of us can't bring ourselves to pray for our needs and struggles and situations. We're, it's a much easier for us to pray for others or big picture mission things than for our own struggles right before us. Jesus says, come to God like a father, concerned for his glory and purposes and transparent about your needs and desires. He knows who you are anyway. Be transparent about who you are and the needs not only of you and your family, but your brothers and sisters as well. So let's look at these first three petitions, starting in verse 9. Pray then like this. Jesus says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. <coughs> Excuse me. First, Jesus prays that God's name would be Hallowed. This is a, a word that you're probably familiar with if you've been around church very long. It means to, to sanctify. It means to, to set apart, to consider holy. It's not just a prayer for God's name alone to be set apart as holy, but that God himself would be set apart as holy. In Scripture, just like in our lives, there's a direct connection between someone's name and who they are, their reputation and, and who they are. And Jesus, so he teaches us to pray that God's name and God himself would be set apart as holy in our lives and in the lives of everyone on the planet. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Friends, God is holy, but he is not seen as holy and set apart today in the world as he should be. And so as his people, Jesus teaches us to pray that this terrible, tragic reality would end. That it would end not just in our, in our lives, that, that we, would be, we would be repenting and making God central in all that we do, in our thoughts, in our prayers, and in the eyes of everyone else that we know, everyone in the planet, that their eyes would be open to the sheer splendor and majesty and glory and honor of God. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're very welcome here, and we're so glad that you're with us this morning. Thank you for being with us. I don't know what you think about God today. I know that's a big topic, but one you probably expect to hear about when you come to church. But this part of Jesus' prayer helps us to see that whatever our kind of human view of God is, it is too low. God is, the Bible says, our creator. He's completely independent and all-powerful and all-knowing and good. He made the world. He made all of us. And there is no evil, no wrong that he has ever done. And yet we have all turned away from him. And instead of setting him apart in our lives as holy, as the most important thing in our lives in the universe, we've rejected him. We've made him unimportant, unimpressive, boring. 
not worth giving time to. And that is the story of sin in the world. And friend, it's your story. And it's my story. The story of everyone in this room. Sin is essentially not honoring God for who he is. And Jesus' prayer shows us our sin of rejecting and neglecting God in our lives. Friend, we're not naturally children of God. We don't naturally come to God as Father. Naturally, we come to him as his enemy, as a child of wrath who deserves his just punishment for our sins. He is the rightful judge of the universe. And unless we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus, we will know him as judge before we know him as anything else. Well, Jesus continues and, and he, he, he prays that God's name be hallowed and then his kingdom come. That's his second petition in verse 10. Hallowing God's name implies this honor and respect and submission like the, like the word kingdom implies that there's a king. When Jesus teaches us to pray for God's kingdom to come, it doesn't imply that right now God isn't sovereignly ruling over the world. Now things are just chaos. One day God will be in control. No, God is absolutely in control. Rather, he's referring to God's redemptive work through Christ, his saving kingdom, which has already begun, already broken in through the coming of Jesus Christ to, to this earth, his, his perfect life and obedience and substitutionary death on a cross and resurrection from the grave. So this prayer is a prayer for the final coming of that kingdom, for Christ to come again and to make everything right as on earth as it is in heaven. And until that time, for God's kingdom to be ever expanding, for his churches to be ever growing, his people thriving. So you see this balance in the Bible. The early church reflected this kind of already not yet idea of the kingdom. They prayed, God, God, expand your saving rules. Save people. Let your reign uh, grow in the hearts of your people, those who don't even know you. But they also prayed something like what Paul prayed in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Oh, Lord, come. Jesus, come back. We want you to come back now and to make everything right. That's the, the last kind of verse in the Bible. Revelation twenty two twenty. 20. He who testifies to these things, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And there ought to be an aching in your prayer, in your life, for Jesus to come. For his kingdom to come now and for it to finally come and be consummated. One day every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And, and his coming kingdom is related to his will being done. That next petition, his, his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the kingdom of God in its fullness, the, the perfect accomplishment of the Father's will, without rebellion, without delay or opposition, without sin. As we pray this, we ourselves are just reminded of our own responsibility now to see God's will done on earth as a righteous preview of this eternal kingdom that will come. That, that means we're to commit ourselves to understanding God's will, to knowing the scriptures and what the scriptures teach us about God's will and not just understanding, but obeying them. That our lives would look like the description in the Beatitudes of people who have been transformed by God's grace. Think about the contrast between the Garden of Eden, for example, and the Garden of Gethsemane. 
In that first garden, Adam and Eve say clearly to God, it is not about your will, it is about my will. And friends, that is the state that we live under the reign of sin. But under Christ, we say like Jesus in the second garden, not my will, but your will be done. Friends, that is our, that is our example, that is our vision for seeking God's will in our lives. And Jesus, Jesus prays and teaches us to pray with this focus toward God, his name, his kingdom, his will. And this Godward focus results in a Godward glory. So friend, just think about your own prayer, your own thought process about prayer. Is it centered around God? Do your prayers have kind of a a kingdom agenda, a, a kingdom flavor to them? Are they particularly mainly about just what's going on in your own life? Are you praying for non-Christians that you know that don't know the Lord? Are you regularly praying for them? Friend, we say all the time and believe the, the doctrine of hell. We, we believe there is eternal punishment for those who reject Christ. But are we, are we living that out in the way that we pray for those that don't know Jesus, who are going to hell? Are we praying for missionaries that we support, for for the health of our own church, for our witness and growth in holiness and discipleship and evangelism? Whose agenda is revealed in our our prayers? Well, Jesus teaches us that our, our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that applies even in our prayer. That doesn't mean that God is unconcerned with us or that or we never mention our own needs and cares. That's what the next three petitions teach us there. So look, I'll pick it up in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So in Jesus' day, laborers were paid each day for the work they accomplished that day. And the pay was so low, they weren't really able to save anything. They just had to spend it on that that day's needs. And so one day's work basically bought one day's food, which means a crop failure here or there could spell disaster for your life or for your family. And so Jesus teaches us to pray for daily bread. And for more than that, he teaches us to trust God to meet our daily physical needs. Needs And, and we're, listen, we're not in this context. We have to understand this in the West as Americans. We don't have the regular reminder that, oh, I should pray or I might die. But we are no less dependent upon God for our daily provision. We may think we are because we have monthly paychecks and full pantries and grocery stores on every corner. But we need to be reminded of James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There's two, two sides to this petition. One would be that we would never think that we're ultimately taking care of ourselves. That, that God is the ultimate supplier and giver. Every gift is from Him. What do we have that we didn't receive? But secondly, we, would, we wouldn't hesitate to ask God to help us to, to meet our physical needs. We, we should bring those needs of our finances and family troubles and relationship issues to him in prayer. Not just ours, but those of our brothers and sisters. He cares. He provides. He wants us to come to him with our needs. He wants us to be a dependent people, even on our daily bread. Listen to what 
the author of Proverbs says in Proverbs 30, verse 7, he says, Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying, and then give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And you just see the dependent heart behind that. I don't want to be rich because if I am, I, I'm afraid that I'll forget you and think that I did all this myself. I don't want to be poor and not have anything because I'm afraid I'll steal and then profane your name. So Lord, just, just meet my needs and let me be dependent and content with you. Give us our daily bread. Next, Jesus prays and teaches us to pray for forgiveness. He says, and remember the context here is, is daily, I think. I mean, we, so this is a regular thing. Daily bread is regular. That we assume that, that sin is a regular thing. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. In Aramaic, it's not uncommon to refer to sin as a debt. So you saw it in Luke's account. He, just, he refers to the sin there, to the debt as sin. Sin is a debt. And, and all of us have sinned and all of us are unable to pay what we owe with our own resources, our good deeds. So our only hope is for the riches of Christ through the gospel to pay our debt, to clear our account, to set us right with God. And that's the good news that we celebrate together today on the Lord's Day, that God has done it. But Jesus reminds us that our relationship with God is, in fact, a relationship. And when we come into his presence, praying for his name to be hallowed and for his will to be done, we'll be convicted of our sin. And we should confess our sin. Even though we understand that we're forgiven in Christ, just like I understand that my wife loves me, she's promised to love me until death separates us, but when I blow it, theoretically, when I blow it, I apologize. I ask for forgiveness to, to seek to restore our relationship. And relationships are just kind of key through this little section on forgiveness. Jesus connects our forgiveness from God to the way we forgive others. He says, so, so pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus expects those who have been forgiven a mountain of sin debt by God to be those who also forgive debts and sins of others. Friends, this, is, this is so important that he reiterates it at the end. It's like the prayer's over, but he says, oh, and by the way, let me say this part again. Verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespass, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespass, neither will your Father forgive your trespass. So I, I think behind that, those two verses, we see the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. We won't read that whole text, but you'll remember that there was a man who owed a king a great debt, more than he could pay in his entire lifetime. His wife and children were then going to be sold into slavery, he himself enslaved to pay it. He falls on his knees and he just begs for an opportunity to pay. And the king does more than that. He totally forgives his debt. Totally. It was canceled. He was free. Now, what would a person like that do, say, if someone came to him later that day and they owed him money? Well, this guy, 
interacts with this person who owes him a fraction of what he had just been forgiven and chokes him and throws him in prison until he's able to pay. And so when the king finds out, he turns the man over to the jailers until he could repay all that he owed. And we know from the parable that will be never. There is this implication of eternity there. And the concluding verse is this, Matthew 18, 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Just notice the connection between prayer and life here. Jesus isn't teaching works righteousness, but the simple truth that forgiven sinners forgive other sinners. And and prayer, our communion with God, reminds us of our status as forgiven sinners. We're communing with God, who's forgiven us, who's now our Father. It reminds us and prompts us to be regular in our forgiveness of others, that we would live out of our treasure in the gospel. It's hard to hold a grudge against someone that you are regularly praying for. Not impossible, but it's hard. Prayer connects for us God's grace to us and our love and grace to others. I remember a hurting marriage years back in another church where a wife was just, she was reading her Bible every day for about an hour, but was absolutely just vicious to her husband. Um, And he was lost on the fact that she could spend that much time in the Word and still be very cold toward him. And, And she had just lost that connection between God's forgiveness of her and her need to forgive and to love her husband. Prayer, her prayer life was, was withering away. Jesus encourages us to pray in order to keep our hearts from this kind of bitterness. And that takes us to our last petition there in verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think there's another couple texts in Matthew's gospel that help us to understand where Jesus is coming from here. Maybe the clearest example is when he's in the garden and he's asking for his disciples to pray as his final hour of trial has come and they, they can't stay awake to pray. And Jesus says in Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So pray that you don't enter into temptation, that you don't sleep away one of the most critical moments in history, that you don't yourself fall into the temptation to not believe that I am who I said I am and desert me. And they slept. And we know that God doesn't tempt us. Uh, James is clear, James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Yet we shouldn't pray that we would, we would just go out and be faced with every temptation that's out there um, today that we could just prove how strong we are. And we ought to pray that we not be led into situations that we ourselves can't handle. Surely there will be times when we are tested. God would test us. Often it's difficult for us to discern between the two. But we ought not be proud of our abilities to withstand temptation. We should rather pray to be free from the temptation and delivered, not just from evil generally, but the evil one specifically. I think that's how we should read that that verse. The other text behind this petition, I think, is Matthew 4, when Jesus himself is tempted in the wilderness. And that section begins in verse 1 like this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit 
into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Friends, we ought to pray not to be led into temptation because we will not always pass the test. We ought not to taunt the devil and say, you know, cute little things about who he is and how much greater we are now than than him. The only person we want going toe-to-toe with the devil is Jesus, Not, not us. And friends, that's exactly what Jesus does in the wilderness. He goes toe-to-toe with Satan, toe-to-toe with his best temptations, and he prevails. And we ought to rather be trusting evermore in the one who who was tempted and obeyed, who withstood the test and obeyed in our place, and who finally did deliver us from the evil one, who still prays for us. John 17, 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, Jesus prays. So friends, this is, this is the Lord's prayer. Comprehensive, beautiful, rich, packed with, with lots of years of meditation material for you and for me. We want to pray like this. We want to pray like Jesus. For Jesus to be strong when we are weak. For God to, pro- to provide for our needs. For his forgiveness of us to inform the way that we forgive and love others. For hu- humility to trust God for deliverance through temptation. Even though it's likely not in the original, I'm sure some of you memorize in the Lord's Prayer that last little doxology, yours is the kingdom and power and glory forever. Amen. Anybody memorize that section, that part? I did. Um, I think that's okay. Um, it's probably not, scholars say, in the original, but, but we, would, we would not say it's incorrect. It's, it's an appropriate doxology in response to, to all that leads up and all that we've seen so far, that God would receive all the glory. All glory is God's. And when we pray like Jesus, our hearts begin to desire that more than anything else. Now, there's so much we'd, we could say and think about with the Lord's Prayer. Let's conclude with another prayer. This one was credited to St. Francis of Assisi that that seeks to apply just this heart and posture of what Jesus is is teaching us here in this prayer. He says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And when there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we we thank you for your word and... We thank you for this uh, particular word to us about prayer. And Lord, we confess our, our sin, our divided hearts, often when it comes to prayer. Part of our hearts thinking that we're in control. Part of our hearts wanting to get attention. Part of our hearts not even wondering if you're that interested in what's going on in our life. Maybe we feel like we've been let down in some way in the past and we're We're reluctant now to come to you and open up ourselves again in prayer. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move and that your word would 
um, be at work now in our hearts as we, as we reflect over it, as we're reminded that you are our heavenly Father, our heavenly Father. You already know our needs before we even ask. Lord, we pray that our communion with you would be sweet. Lord, and as a church, we would be just characterized by a dependence upon you for all that we do. Lord, would you receive all the glory? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the Great Commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.